folks, welcome back to another episode of the Ubuntu Security Podcast, episode 148. I'm Alex Murray. As usual, we will be doing the regular roundup of security fixes that have gone into the supported Ubuntu releases from the past week, but we're going to do a bit of a quick fire version of that because I have got uh, some great content to bring you, I guess, in the uh, majority, uh, I was going to say the latter half of this episode, but really the vast majority of this episode uh, from Camilla, from our uh, team. Uh, you would have heard Camilla over the, the holiday break. Uh, doing uh, some awesome holiday-themed uh, episodes. Thank you, Camilla, for that. And in particular, this time, uh, it's back with uh, some excellent content around the different uh, repository components in Ubuntu. So that's main versus universe. So talking about, I guess, what you can expect to find in those, what's different between them. You, know, you may not even be aware, I guess, that we do have these separate components and how they differ from each other. But in particular, how the security team uh, works with those and the kind of work that we do in assessing packages when they want to go from universe into main and be officially supported by Canonical. So yeah, uh, we will get to that, but let's just first get into the week in security updates. So there were 53 unique CVEs that were addressed by the team this week. Up first, we had uh, some kernel updates. Thanks as always to the kernel team for their uh, awesome hard work on these. So I'm going to be pretty quick about these. We had a uh, update for the 5.13 based kernel that is used for uh, the current interim release, I guess, Ubuntu 2110 plus the hardware enablement kernel for Ubuntu 2004 long-term support. Uh, as well, the same set of uh, patches went into a 5.11 based kernel that is in Ubuntu 20.04 uh, long-term support, but is there? it's used there for uh, the various uh, cloud platforms that Ubuntu runs on, so GCP, AWS, Oracle, and Azure. As well, uh, another uh, update for a GKE-specific kernel. This is a 5.4 based one that is uh, used in Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support and uh, 18.04 long-term support. What else? An update for the 5.4 based kernel in Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support. Again, that is the hardware enablement kernel for the previous long-term support to that. That's 18.04 long-term support. As well, uh, we had an update for the 4.15 uh, release kernel uh, for the 18.04 long-term support release, which again is the hardware enablement kernel for 16.04 extended security maintenance, as well as 14.04 extended security maintenance if you're running that on Azure. All right, we had an update for uh, Samba. I actually talked about this update back in last week's episode. Uh, this time, the same fix is going into uh, Samba for Ubuntu 16.04 extended security maintenance and uh, 14.04 extended security maintenance. This was a uh, high priority vulnerability that affected uh, the VFS fruit module within Samba, essentially uh, that does interoperability with um, Apple machines and their um, Samba implementation. There was a remote code execution vulnerability that was there that has now been patched. An update next for Django. Uh, again, this is for Ubuntu releases uh, 21.10, long-term support, 18.04 long-term support, 16.04 extended security maintenance, and 14.04 extended security maintenance. Uh, two different vulnerabilities were fixed here. Uh, there was a cross-site, a potential cross-site scripting attack that could be mounted uh, due to incorrect handling of the debug template tag. Essentially, that was uh, not properly encoded. Uh, so yeah, you could potentially inject content there and perform a cross-site scripting attack. As well, uh, a fix for a possible infinite loop that could be triggered uh, when parsing malformed or I guess malicious files uh, when doing file uploads. Uh, as well, we had updates for MySQL. Uh, this is for Ubuntu releases 21.10, 20.04 long-term support, 18.04 long-term support, and 6.04 extended security maintenance. So a huge number of fixes went into this, uh, as we often see for MySQL uh, updates. Uh, Oracle doesn't really release many details on these, but uh, yeah, we have updated to version 8.0.23 for the more recent releases. That's 20.04 long-term support and 21.10. Uh, but for uh, the older releases, that's 5.7.37. So that is for 18.04 long-term support and 16.04 long-term support. What else? We had an update for the Perl DBI module for, uh, oh, actually, we've got a few updates here for our 16.04 extended security maintenance users. So Perl DBI was updated, uh, GPTF disk and GraphBiz. So a bunch of fixes went into all of those. Uh, as well, we had an update for BlueZ. This was a possible heat buffer overflow uh, in the GAT server. So if you do have, I guess, uh, what are potentially attacker-controlled devices connecting to your machines, you know, they could have used that as a uh, denial-of-service attack or potential remote code execution you know, by corrupting memory uh, as a result. And that goes, uh, that's for all the supported Ubuntu releases, basically from 21.10, 20.04 long-term support, 18.04 long-term support, and 16.04 extended security maintenance. 
I had an update for uh, Python in 1404 extended security maintenance. So uh, this was to reinstate a fix for a CVE that we had rolled out actually uh, last year, but then due to a regression, uh, so that upstream fix actually caused uh, an issue there. So we had to back that out. Uh, so we've now uh, re-released that uh, and fixed the regression as a result. And uh, the last couple of things, we had an update for the NVIDIA graphics drivers. Uh, this is for uh, Ubuntu releases 18.04 long-term support, 20.04 long-term support, and 21.10. Uh, two different vulnerabilities here around uh, handling of permissions within the kernel that essentially could allow a local user to write to protected memory within the kernel. You can imagine uh, it could possibly cause a denial of service there, but uh, yeah, the, that's what the upstream NVIDIA uh, release about these vulnerabilities said. Really, uh, there's not much detail there, but I do wonder whether that also could have been used for potentially uh, you know, privilege escalation or code execution within the kernel, because if you can write to memory, uh, you know, all bets are usually off. And finally, we had an update for uh, the 5.4 based kernel in Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support, and it's the hardware enablement kernel for 18.04 long-term support because uh, the previous update for that inadvertently introduced a denial of service uh, when accessing uh, SIFS shares. So these are, um, uh, you know, Microsoft uh, kind of like SMB uh, file system. Uh, basically, the kernel would hang when trying to access uh, shares on behalf of users. So that has been fixed by reverting those few patches that caused that, uh, yeah, which came in from the latest upstream update that we had there. And that is it for the week in security updates. As I said, uh, you know, went through that in pretty minor detail because uh, I really wanted to devote uh, the majority of this episode to uh, this next part, which is an awesome uh, section from Camilla uh, discussing, as I say, the different software repository components in Ubuntu. So that's kind of how they compare, what you can expect to find in each, as well as the process for moving uh, software packages between them because essentially you know some of them are supported by canonical and some are supported by the community and so if you then want something to now be supported by canonical there are certain things uh, I guess the package needs to meet you know a certain uh, level of quality and different teams need to I guess have faith that it is able to be supported that they can support that without you know some extraordinary amount of work and that means things like you know checking the upstream health of the project and you know do they respond to security reports and all of that but you know, I won't steal Camila's thunder. Uh, yeah, thank you, Camila, and uh, take it away. Hello, listener. I return today to the Ubuntu Security Podcast in order to scratch one of those itches that you might have in your mind when you think about love, life, and the Ubuntu Linux distribution. But before I introduce our de facto topic for this episode, I want to first share with you all a little bit about my first months in 2022. I moved packed my bags, put all I had into boxes, got the car, got my pup, and drove a long way through the country to get to the new city I was going to live in. Upon arrival, I had a place to stay, but it was only temporary. I had to do some quick searching to find a permanent home and not be out in the cold rain. But actually, not really, because the place I moved to is quite hot. You get my point, though. I had to find a place before my time in the temporary vacation home was up. Even though it was quick, it was not an easy search. Searching for a place to live is a big responsibility and you want to find the place that is just right. It's going to be the place you spend most of your time at, so you want something that not only attends your basic human needs, such as having food, water, a bed for you to sleep in, and obviously Wi-Fi, but you also want a place that feels comfortable, a place where you can make memories together with friends and family. The bottom line is, you want a place that makes you happy, body, mind, and soul. But enough with the sentimentality, the main idea here is, house hunting can be a difficult task, even though we might have many properties available to us when we go in said hunt. That is because we have all kinds of properties, different shapes, sizes, functionalities, amenities, and even colors. It's so much to choose from, sometimes we might even get overwhelmed. But even if we don't know in a list of many which is the one we should choose, we do most of the times know which ones to immediately refuse. Picture this, an amazing medieval looking and fruitless mansion. Live in style while you experience what it is like to preserve the meat you eat using only salt. Maybe that's a yes for you, but it's a no for me. Things get even more complicated when you are going to share your living space with someone else. I told my husband I wanted an apartment with a huge framed picture of a stack trace, but he said no. 
Oh well, go figure these people that don't like debugging code. Anyway, this is just to show that the more people involved in the process, the more specific needs we might have when searching for a house to live in. I mean, now I have to cut out all apartments that have debugging related decoration, which, mind you, is not very common, but could still exist. That all being said, I have found a place to live, thank you very much, one that attends my needs and of the people that I currently live with. So this is a story of success. The question now is, why am I telling you about my life in a podcast about cybersecurity? Well, I could say to you that this is just because I want to share the good news with everyone, and therefore I can just end the podcast segment here. But I am not one to be so devious. I tell you this story for a reason, one that might not seem very clear right now and may not be for a while, but bear with me, and soon enough, hopefully, the pieces will all fall into place. So, starting with the first piece, let's talk about what is the real topic for this episode. Main versus universe. Well, this is the cool name I decided to give it because things are always a lot more fun when you add a little pizzazz to them. But to be even more clear, Crystal, if you will, in today's episode, we will be talking about the Ubuntu package components. In other words, main, restricted, universe, and multiverse. More specifically and in more detail, we will be talking about main and universe, how they relate to the work that the security team does, and what makes a package worthy of the main component from a security point of view. So I invite you to join me in this ride which will probably be a lot smoother than my car ride into where I currently am right now. To learn a little bit more about what makes an apartment, oops, sorry, a software package, one to be accepted into the Ubuntu main component. To start our journey through the security analysis process that bumps a package from universe to main, let's first try to understand what is main and what is universe. At first, when I didn't know all that much about Debs, Apt, and the packaging process in general, main and universe for me were just two words I would have at the end of a sources list file in my Etsy app directory. I considered that they did what their name said they did. So in other words, for me, main was software that was necessary to get Ubuntu up and running, while universe was the rest. I want to say that I was kind of correct in thinking that way, but actually I wasn't. It is an intuitive way to think about things, I say, trying to give myself some credit, but what is main and what is universe goes beyond the simple concepts of what is essential software and what is all other software. Even if main indeed is the home for packages necessary to provide a user with a minimal system. But that is not a talk we will have today. Maybe next time, I wonder. I'll leave this seed planted here for now. And the ones who know, will know what I mean. Anyway, going back to our components talk, I must add that we have more components than just main and universe. So let's talk about those as well, since we're at it, shall we? This time, however, I will consider the correct definition and not the one inferred by my mind. Let's start by talking about main. Who, what, where, when is main? Main is the software component in Ubuntu that will contain not only software that is required by the various teams of Canonical for their technical purposes, but also will contain the most popular open source applications we have out there. The ones everyone is using to set up websites, development environments, network infrastructures, etc., etc., etc. You have to say it three times or else it just doesn't count. If it is an open source software you see lying around in every Linux using company software environments, you can bet with 99% certainty that it will probably be a part of main. I leave the 1% out because popularity is not the only thing that will get a software into the highly coveted main component, as reliability here is also key. Everything that is a part of main is being not only freely distributed together with the Ubuntu operating system, it is also being fully supported by the Ubuntu team. Therefore, for a software to be part of a constantly supported group of code, it needs to dress up for the part and be software with a pleasant maintainability status. 
No one wants to bring to their A-team a team member that keeps failing over and over again. Don't get me wrong, failure is not a problem and sometimes it is the first step towards success. But here we are talking about software and systems that depend on another software to provide some type of service. So as the saying goes, manners maketh man and software. Packages in the main component are officially supported by Canonical until of the end of life of a release. And for LTS, also known as long-term support versions, they are supported for an additional 10 years through the extended security maintenance updates, available through Ubuntu Advantage. So, I don't want to sound too cheeky here, but a software that is a part of the main component can be considered one of the Ubuntu package hotshots the one every boy wants to install, every girl wants to update, and a lot of IT environments are currently using to build up their fancy infrastructures. Welcome to the God tier, my friend. A tier where everyone cleans up really nice in order to stay above the stars. Oh, and don't ever forget the open source part. It's quite a big deal. On to the next component. Let's talk a little bit about Universe. So I was calling main packages the god tier, but do not be completely carried away and think that just because a package is not in main, it's a bad package. Let's talk a little bit about Universe and try to understand this a little bit better. Universe represents the essence of the Linux FOSS community. For those that don't know, free open source software community. Therefore, it contains a lot of packages built by developers of said community, a lot of them, might I add, which you may be using right now to run that sweet setup you have in your local machine. And I know what question you might be asking right now. What is the actual difference from the software in universe to the software in main? So far, all you've pointed out is that both components have open source software in them, meaning no difference between them up until this point. I agree with you. So far, I just said things that make both components seem the same. So let's bring into the conversation a little bit of the information that will shed light onto what makes Universe not main. Packages in Universe stay in Universe because to move to main, they need to meet a set of standards set by the Ubuntu team, some of those which are security standards, since packages in main are supported by Canonical, as previously mentioned. Therefore, more than just staying in universe for maybe being a less used piece of software by the community, packages stay in universe when they still require some tweaking by the developers in order for related software code to be considered a well-maintained, properly documented, and sufficiently secure one. Packages in universe are in an invisible line waiting to pitch their assets to the Ubuntu team in order to get sent up to main. Given all that has been said so far, Keep in mind that Universe packages might be considered a riskier install, as it will not receive security updates from the Canonical team. However, please do not be scared to use software from this component, as the software community for most of them is active and looking to evolve their code. Your install might be the contribution a package needs to become more popular and gain more visibility, which in turn might lead to more updates and the positive development of the associated source code. One day, your install might be the one that takes a package from universe to main, so keep that in mind. Plus, while still not in main, these packages not maintained by Canonical are being maintained by the Motu, or Masters of the Universe. An important name for an important job. Anyway, the Motu are community members who maintain and support packages in universe, keeping a watchful eye over them when and if possible. This is also where universe embraces the idea of the FOSS community, since it is the community that will watch over these packages. Therefore, if packages in main are the god tier, remember that all gods need their loyal believers to become powerful. So, you know. Don't pray for the packages, but do our digital world equivalent here and install them and interact with the community to support open source software projects. Let's talk about restricted. What? You thought we only had two components? Yeah, me too a while back, so no need to beat yourself up about it. 
Sure, main and universe are the package sweethearts, the ones everyone hears the most about and the ones that we are going to focus the most on throughout this episode. But the packaging landscape in Ubuntu goes beyond that, with restricted and even the word of the moment, multiverse, being a part of this landscape. So it would be very imprudent on my part not to share with you all of the information we have on components before moving on to other topics. Let's cover all of our bases. So we have restricted and multiverse, but let's start by explaining what restricted is, shall we? We begin our description of restricted by mentioning that it includes software that is not free, meaning restricted is a component that will be made up by a group of software that is considered proprietary. What kind of proprietary software will we find in restricted, you ask? Mainly tools and drivers that can be used to install Ubuntu in everyday hardware. An example, sometimes we have graphics cards in our computer which are related to proprietary software. You can't get it to work if you don't have its driver installed in your Ubuntu operating system. In comes Restricted to help you solve that issue. Do note, however, that since software in Restricted is proprietary, Canonical might not always be able to completely support it. Canonical will only be an intermediate actor that will forward problems with the packages in this repository to the actual people responsible for said software. So yes, Ubuntu might have a few packages that are not open source, however, this will only happen when a specific non-open source software is necessary for an Ubuntu install to work. And when it does happen, this software will be available in its own component, which is our star of the moment, restricted. Some of those software are shipped together with the Ubuntu install image. However, there is a free software only option that allows the install to happen with this component disable in case it is what you want for your environment setup. For those that want to exclusively use FOSS, they can look at main and universe and find most of, if not all that they need, but the restricted component is there to reach out a hand for those that don't mind a little bit of proprietary here and there. Finally, we go beyond the known package universe, beyond everything we know and understand, to a place where life and physics may be so different that your mind would break if you were to ever enter the realm that is known as the multiverse. Okay, that might have been a little bit dramatic. However, one thing is the same when we consider the multiverse component and the actual multiverse that might be out there. Enter it at your own risk. The multiverse component contains software that is not free, things such as emulators, printer drivers, and software which contains artwork that isn't free, as a few examples to mention. In multiverse, software packages licensing requirements do not meet the Ubuntu main component license policy. Ergo, it is your responsibility, if you plan to venture into the multiverse, to verify what rights you have when using software that lies in this component. Get into multiverse, prepare to understand the package's licensing terms, or be prepared to get copyright infringed. So, I guess we can consider that the multiverse component is a place where life and physics are different from what we usually know. Since when we are talking about Ubuntu, that which we usually know is free and open source software. So, as you can see, an Ubuntu component is nothing more than a fancy term used to describe a software category for software that can be installed in your Ubuntu operating system. Actually, we can also make it clear by just thinking about the definition of the word component itself, a constituting part of a larger whole. This whole, in our case, is not a pit of darkness, but the entire collection of software that is packaged for distribution together with Ubuntu releases. Let's wrap up this entire explanation with a quick summary, shall we? Main and restricted are the package components that contain software that is supported by Canonical with security updates, fixes, and tech support. The former contains free software and the latter proprietary software. On the other hand, we have Universe and Multiverse, which contain software packages not supported by Canonical, but supported by the community, with Multiverse being the proprietary equivalent of Universe. Universe packages, however, being free and open source, 
always have a chance to get sent to Maine should they comply with the Ubuntu team standards, the security team standards being the ones we will talk about in more detail as of right now. Time to get our hands dirty and talk about what really interests those listening to a security podcast. Also, let's get into that analogy I was making way earlier, just so it's actually an analogy and not just a rant about how moving can be difficult. So, as I mentioned previously, when you are looking for a new place to live, you are not only looking for a place that is well-maintained, you are also looking for a place that is safe and a place you can feel comfortable living in. It's the same when we think about supporting a package. What? Is it life that imitates art or art that imitates life? Starting to understand now where I was taking you with that analogy? Let's continue then. Consider a rental situation instead of a buying situation. After all, the packages we have in Ubuntu are mostly developed outside of Canonical. So it's like we are renting packages from the original developers. Never thought I'd make that comparison, did you? Anyway, we want packages that have code that is well and regularly maintained, as well as code that isn't filled up with security vulnerabilities. Think about the software developers as your landlords that will help you manage any issues you might face in your property, or in this case, the package that is being borrowed from them to be made available in Ubuntu Linux. Imagine now a situation where you have a beautiful and brand new apartment building that after six months has plumbing issues and electricity issues which have never been addressed because the landlord simply gave up on managing and maintaining the property. Sure, we are the ones in need for a place to live, but if this information gets to you before you sign the rental contract, you would probably throw that pen far away as this apartment would not qualify as an adequate place for you to spend most of the days of your life in. If a pipe is broken every day and the neighbors are jamming to loud music all throughout the night and nothing is ever done about it, then this definitely should not be considered a good deal. The same goes for a house that is not at all safe, with no locks on the doors, for example, or with a huge amount of mold on the walls. These places can be immediately removed from the places I'm considering to rent list. The search continues. I can handle sleeping outside in the rain for a few days. A good apartment or house to live in would be one where few issues happen, and when they do, the related problems are solved quickly and responsibly, with the people who live in the house being given temporary solutions in case of a problem that might take a while to solve, and with issues being solved in such a way that it is avoided that they ever happen again. And surprise, surprise, the same rule applies to software packages that are going to be supported by Canonical. We are renting a package so that users can have these functionalities readily available to them. We are renting an apartment and we want to have our friends over to have swell parties, but for that we need to have a nice place to throw said party. The place needs to be well kept and safe or else no one will want to show up. Ah, the eternal burden of hosting. Plus. We also would have responsibilities and rules to hold up to if we want our house to be our party venue, which include taking care of the apartment itself and making sure discovered issues are promptly fixed with the landlord's help. Software that does not consider secure code or that is not regularly maintained in order for discovered security vulnerabilities to be promptly fixed are more complicated to support than software that, even with security issues affecting them, document these issues very well and fix them in a correct and timely manner. So, the next time you think about a software package and why it might not be in main, think about what reasons might there be for the software associated to this package not be quite ready to be consistently supported by the Ubuntu team. That being said, if today a software is not considered appropriate for the main component, the main component being the places you marked with a check and a smiley face in your apartment hunting list, it doesn't mean it will be forever banned from this component. Life is about evolving, and just like people, we need to give software a chance to evolve, become better, well-documented, regularly maintained, and then when it is, it gets a chance to apply to main and maybe leave universe. Sometimes an apartment is almost perfect. 
You just didn't put the smiley face next to it in your notes because the kitchen sink is missing its tap. What if the landlord puts the tap there for you? You might want to change your list a little bit. And that, my friends, is where the MIRs, short for Main Inclusion Reviews, come in. The MIR process starts when a reporter opens an MIR bug issue, requesting a certain package to be promoted from Universe to Main. This open bug will then be reviewed by the MIR team. The Ubuntu main inclusion rules and to-dos list will contain all requirements a package needs to meet in order for it to be sent packing into main. And a reporter must reference this in order to open a bug issue for a package that is compliant to them. The MIR team creates and analyzes the package report and sometimes requests an extra review to be performed by the members of the security team. If it isn't obvious yet, the members of this team will perform a security review to guarantee that a package is fit for main before it is actually transferred to that component. What we want to talk about in more depth today is exactly what is the security team review, also known as auditing, and understand how it happens. The MIR process from the security team's point of view aims to identify where the software might be cutting corners or not using security best practices. The idea is to look at the software like a possible attacker would. We try to identify how easily exploitable or how vulnerable the software is now, how easily exploitable it might be or how many vulnerabilities it might be prone to having in the future given the way the code is structured and how frequently it is maintained. We also consider how well and frequently the developer addresses security issues reported by the community and recorded in CVEs. Plus, how organized is the process of reporting and fixing said issues is. Finally, we considered how easy or difficult it will be for the security team to keep up with security changes made to this software project. Think of it this way. We want an apartment that is built on a strong foundation with good materials and following safety protocols such that the likeliness of something breaking or you having any issue is minimal. We want our home to be minimally secure. We want it to have a lock, maybe a gate, include windows, and even possibly be located in a building that has security cameras. We also want to be the only people who own the keys to the apartment, for example. We want a protective landlord that fixes issues taken to him regarding the apartment and its assets. This landlord not only fixes these issues, but they also correctly report them so that the information is readily available to those that matter and can be referenced when necessary. They share information on what was the problem, what are the fixes, and what might be a temporary solution in case an immediate fix cannot be applied. Finally, we want an apartment that we will also be able to keep well-maintained. After all, we are the ones renting it. Sometimes, a furnished three-story mansion that is renovated and redecorated by the landlord every month might be too much for you, and keeping track of all the changes being made might affect your living experience negatively. Throwing parties for your open source community user friends starts getting more and more complicated because when you finish planning the party for a given weekend, all your furniture has already been moved around and rooms have changed to a point where it's just easier to not throw the party at all. You bought red balloons to match your red couch, but it's blue now. Therefore, trying to understand things such as the velocity of a software project and how it affects backporting of security patches is also important when considering a candidate that will be moved from universe to main. So, what are some of the questions that security reviewers might ask when doing an MIR of a package? What are the initial analysis steps? Point number one to consider. What are the CVEs associated with this software? Are there any active or unaddressed CVEs involving it? For the fixed CVEs, were those addressed in a timely fashion? Once again, go back to our rent example and think of yourself as someone still in the apartment hunt. You are looking at an apartment right now and you ask the realtor, what is the mugging history for this property? 
Has anyone who lived there reported stolen goods? Did any break-ins happen due to poor infrastructure or poor design? If a break-in did happen, how quickly was the cause for it fixed? That is what we are asking when analyzing the previous vulnerabilities reported for a given software. If a CVE from five years ago still exists, it has been proven to be exploitable, and the developer never released a fix for it, maybe the package related to this software is not the best candidate to be sent to me. On the other hand, when we have a software with its CVEs properly addressed, patches released as soon as possible, and good patches at that, we can check off our list a lot of issues we might have faced involving the security maintenance of this package. Because let me tell you, patch hunting when you have bad bug reports or no bug reports at all can be a very arduous task. You must dig deep into a code that was not developed by yourself, which I think we can all agree is a nightmare for a lot of developers. Imagine to the security folks. Second point of analysis, what are the dependencies associated with this package? Or in other words, what other software does it need to run properly? Sometimes the problem is not the apartment itself. Sometimes it's the water company, the electricity company, the internet provider. Your package is perfect. No bad coding practices in sight. However, it does use a function from that library that hasn't been maintained for the past 10 years and has 10 plus unpacked CVEs under its belt. If a person is known by the company they keep, then a software is known by the dependencies it has. Is this an unremediable situation? Maybe not. Maybe in the future, developers decide to switch up used libraries in order to include two dependencies ones that are being currently maintained. And then, problematic pieces of software are removed from the dependency list. Sometimes, the change suggestion might even come from the security team after an audit. We are a community after all, so things discovered during audits might become valuable information to package maintainers or developers. Point number three, what does the package do? Seems like an important enough thing to consider, right? A package that includes networking functionalities is more likely to contain vulnerabilities than a package that simply prints hello world to the screen. Know thy functionalities and you shall better understand security issues in thy code. Therefore, the real question we are asking is, what is the package? What will it allow a user to do and what interfaces will it use to do so? What is the interaction between the code running in the CPU and third parties? As previously mentioned, the more interaction a software has with the network and with users, and the more it processes input provided by external entities, the higher are the chances that it might have an entry point for attackers. Think about it this way. Living in a huge lead cube would be ideal when you think about security. No one gets in, no one gets out, there is no way you are at risk from external threats when all you have access to is the internal. However, nobody wants to live in an apocalyptic bunker unless the apocalypse actually comes. So usually, when we are looking for a future home, we try to find a place that has enough windows and enough doors that we don't need to feel completely isolated and alone in the world. But we also look for a house that is not made completely out of glass, for example, such that everyone on the outside can see what you are doing, plus they can throw rocks at your walls and bring the entire house down with one simple move. This here is the eternal struggle that happens between security and usability, where usually more of one means less of the other. When doing audits, we try to find balance, a code that might get user input, but doesn't do so inconsequently and at times where it's not necessary. In securely coded software, this user input is also always treated with care and the user, unfortunately, is always considered an untrustworthy source of data to be processed. Point number four considered during analysis. How does the installation process work and how is the program set to run? Are pre and post installation scripts created in files in a responsible manner? 
Is it possible to have such scripts leak information through improper cleaning of temporary files, for example, or even establish race conditions during their execution, which an attacker might use to their advantage during an install process? Just because it's only executed once, it does not mean it is immune to external exploits, since pre- and post-installation scripts are still a part of the software code at one point. There are CVEs which address specifically these sneaky scripts, meaning there at least is an official reason to check them out, if nothing else. Precedent, some might call it. Some who watch too many legal series on television and try to pretend like they understand what is happening throughout episodes. Um, anyway, during install, we also have that a program might create a user with high privileges, and then This is the user that initiates the software execution whenever it needs to be run in the system. This is a possible security issue, considering the exploitation of the software might lead to a breach where an attacker has significant privileges in the target system, not needing to worry about escalating privileges after an initial invasion. Installation files define how a program will run in the future, so addressing them during a security review is very necessary. Another question that might be asked, still regarding this topic, are there any set UID binaries that are created during the install? Set UID binaries are famous for having code that could be leveraged by an attacker to escalate privileges or execute privileged commands. So if during install, set UID binaries are being created, we have to know what will be the permissions for these binaries, their owners and groups, as well as what these owners are allowed to do in the system. Of course, we also need to see what exactly the set UID binary code will be executing, and hopefully it won't be a call to a system function that runs as root, the shell command passed to it as first argument. Another point of attention, services registered with systemd and cron jobs set for the software. Are they configured and used in a safe manner? Poorly configured cron jobs can allow attacks such as wildcard injections and even come to a point of file overwriting, which in turn may lead to code execution. So, you know, no big deal, just one of the worst things that could happen. It's not just about the code itself, it's about how the system this code will run in is prepared to run it. When you apartment hunt, you are not just worried about the apartment, as you are about how the building structure was built, if safety measures were considered, if hygiene basics are met in the property, all that will allow you to have the least amount of worries possible when you are actually living there. After all, even though poetic, it seems very nihilistic to decide to rent a beautiful mansion on top of a collapsing bridge. If you're going to do it, Just don't. All of the points mentioned previously involve the building process of a package, the installation of the software. However, it is still not yet considering one of the most important analysis targets, the code itself. So obviously, reviewing does not end here. How can we approve of a software without knowing how its code works? How can we completely approve of a home, consider a possible purchase, without knowing what it is truly like to live in it? The main idea is, a software is its source code, and therefore we need to look at this source code to make sure that we won't find any accidental hard-coded passwords in comments for the encryption library. Like looking for hidden mold in the walls of your possible future home, a not-so-exciting, however very necessary saga, if you wish for a peaceful life. What to consider, then, when we are looking at code? What is a main-worthy source code when we are looking at things from a security point of view? The first question we might ask when analyzing source code is, are sub-processes, or other programs spawn during the execution of this software's code. Sometimes code requires the help of some other code to run properly. Sometimes to run, this other code needs to be present in another process. Sometimes this other process that runs these extra tasks for the original code is not invoked in the safest of ways. 
And then an attacker can get some pretty easy command injections through whenever trying to exploit said code. Think of it as a shed you might have in your backyard. You don't live in the shed, you live in the house next to it. You use the shed to store some stuff and that's why its existence is necessary. However, the shed does have a sewer hole that would allow someone crawling through the sewers to get into the fancy apartment complex you live in or at least plan to before you'd seen this. A burglar might use it to get in and sometimes your apartment isn't even the one they want to break into. Still doesn't make you feel any safer though, does it? So sometimes that system call where you spawn a shell just to run a quick bash command that will return you the answer you need might be a very huge problem because even if it doesn't break the software that spawned the subprocess, it does give an attacker the opportunity to hack into the device in general and then all processes are in danger. This is especially dangerous when the subprocess is spawned with the help of input provided by the user, which is the same as you asking a known burglar to build the underground tunnel that will lead to the shed. When looking at source code, we also need to consider how does the software handle files? Are any files written to? Files are the most important asset in any system. Everything is stored in files, recovered from files, organized in what we call a file system. Without files, computers would exist. However, they would behave more like a giant calculator than like the computer we all know and love and also love to hate. The point is, files in a lot of cases are a valuable point of entry for an attacker, be it because said attacker is able to extract data from a file and use this data to their advantage, be it because they are able to change the data in a file and from said changes force a device to do their bidding. Therefore, operations that handle files must be used with care, especially the ones where write instructions are involved. Once again, User-supplied data is never trustworthy, so finding statements where unverified or unsanitized user data is added to a file is a big, oh no, why are you doing this? Please stop. Even situations when a file is not opened properly can be dangerous. Permissions need to be verified and guaranteed that the resource is accessible by only you while you are performing non-atomic operations is essential. Let's go back to our quest, our search for a new apartment. We find one with password controlled locks. So doors in your house can only open or close after typing in the password. The problem is the digital lock is only in one location of the house. If you want to grab something from your very special pantry where you hide sweets from people that might eat them without permission, you type the password, then you need to walk all the way to the pantry, get what you want, and then go back to the far away lock to lock it. Do you see any issues? Your sweet burglar might just be waiting on the corner to quickly steal something while you waste your time journeying from the pantry to the lock and they have plenty of good opportunities to do so without getting caught. Awful apartment design immediately crossed from the list. No one will be stealing my sweets. So more than the way files are written to or read from, the way we are prepared for such operations is also to be considered so we can avoid, for example, race conditions and consequently simlink attacks and also sweet stealing. Still talking about files, another question to be asked is, how are temporary files handled? Sometimes applications might create temporary files to get tasks done, but in the same way you want your regular files to be treated carefully, you want temporary files to be treated with the same amount of concern. Just because it's temporary doesn't mean it isn't forever. It will definitely be forever if an attacker is able to exploit it. Remember that. We usually ignore temporary stuff because, hey, I'm not going to actually use that. It's just a placeholder. And that is true. You probably won't use a temporary file after it has served its purpose. However, if it still exists, someone might decide that they want to use this file for their own purposes. 
you know, like the old tenant of the place you are taking a look at right now who built an attic to store some stuff but decided they didn't want it anymore. So they just left it there. No one has opened it so far because who knows what kind of stuff they left behind. You can be the lucky one to find treasures hidden inside the eerie attic or you can be the unlucky one that will finally open it and figure out the room is filled with bugs and rotting wood. The landlord should never have let this happen, and if the room was supposed to be for temporary use, it should have been built for temporary use only. Now it's just a risk to have it there. After all, rotting wood is not that hard to break through, and there might be someone just waiting to do so right around the corner. Next questions asked, how do logging functions work? Logging seems pretty harmless. You're just writing down to a file what is happening with the software. Sometimes you check that file for errors, right? Well, files are files, no matter what is their purpose. And logs contain a lot of information that might be sensitive to an application and even to an organization. Sometimes log data is processed by other executing programs and things such as usernames, chat messages, or any externally provided data that might be there can be used against you. Log4j or Logforge. Need I say anything else? User input is still something that might exist in your files even when you don't directly ask for that data. So yeah, Checking out logs and how a software builds them and uses them is very important so that you can avoid any unnecessary sensitive information disclosure as well as malicious processing. Hey, I left your spare key underneath your doormat, you read from the apartment message board when you're checking out a property. Such a nice neighbor letting them know, right? Oh, wait. Next up, memory management, memory management, memory management. Everyone knows the good old segmentation fault message and I can guarantee that 99% of people that know it hate it. Well, when checking if a package is apt-get install to go to main, see what I did there? We check to see if a code is following good memory management practices so we can avoid our well-known buffer overflow and use after free vulnerabilities among the many others that can be exploited when a developer is not paying close attention to those locks they are making. To keep up with the analogy, we are looking to see if our landlord is actually renting an apartment with the square footage they said it had on the website, so that we don't show up with furniture that won't fit the house, and then that furniture leaks all the way through the front door. Someone could steal that, or even use it as a tool to try to get inside. We are also making sure they are not already renting that space to someone else or that they allow unauthorized people to use the space in freed up apartments after these apartments don't have any more people living in them but haven't been completely cleaned out. That would be very weird. So, you know, manage your memory like you would manage your property. Well. Let's talk about that lock and key, shall we? If a code implements cryptographic methods or includes operations that handle cryptographic data, it's important to check that it is doing things in a correct manner. It is very easy to call a function random number generator, but have it be a simple, I'll increment the value of the date and time of execution to this fixed, very large odd number, random to whoever is not looking at my code. I am very unpleased to tell you that that's not really good random number generation, especially considering it's not actually random at all, since randomness should not be predictable. This would be a basic function that would cause your whole cryptography infrastructure to come crashing down if you were to use it, the same as having 20 locks in a door that all use a flat key to be opened. Oh wait, the door's not even locked! So yes, if you're going to reinvent the wheel with cryptography, or at least parts of it, be sure you are wisely implementing functions that will apply it. Still on the topic of cryptography, with a tiny step into networking, checking if certificate chains are being validated correctly is also something a security reviewer might do. It's not all about the technical details and mathematical algorithms. It is also about the process that uses them. 
What is the point of implementing the most sophisticated cryptographic functions, ones that actually generate random numbers appropriately, if when it's time to confirm the server's identity, you do it, but allow the SSL tunnel to be established, even if the server's identification data doesn't match what's expected of it. A doorman in your apartment building that calls you to tell you your food has arrived without checking the delivery man's ID. You go down to grab your food and it's some guy trying to trick you into buying some loaded dice again. Maybe that's not the best choice for an apartment, right? Now, the time has finally come for us to talk about networking. We were already talking about it a few seconds ago, indirectly, but we will directly address the subject as we should when we are reviewing code that can likely be sent to main. Let us all be honest and hopefully agree that more than half of the security issues we have wouldn't actually exist if the network didn't exist and if we didn't have the need to exchange data or provide services through it. You are in less danger if you don't interact with anyone and spend all day locked up at home. The apocalyptic bunker, remember that? However, nowadays it's kind of impossible to live life without interaction and without Wi-Fi, especially when people are free to move around the space that exists in the planet, as data is allowed to move around the network. There is one rule when dealing with the network, and it is not the first rule of Fight Club. It is actually trust no one. If there were to be a second rule to dealing with the network, it would be also trust no one. No user provided input is safe and therefore all data that originates from the network must be verified and correctly sanitized before usage. Security reviewers will be looking into that when checking out a source code. And for those that do not follow rule number one, rule number two might be a good place to start when applying fixes that might one day give the software a spot in main. Phew, that was a lot. And yet, all of it is just a summary of the main things we are looking out for when analyzing a package for main. I did it again. Because in reality, a security MIR is a general, and as the name implies, a security-focused static code analysis. So anything that might indicate that a software is not following good security practices might be a warning sign that shows that the associated package is not quite yet ready to be sent to me. The points that were brought up are a few of the most important ones. However, many other elements are analyzed during an MIR such as environment variables, use of privileged functions, policy kit and WebKit interactions, etc., etc., etc. Various points where vulnerabilities can be possibly found or dug out from by an attacker are considered during a security review. Does this mean that all problems in the software will be found and reported by the security team to the developers? No. The goal here is to see if the software has good maintainability and guarantee that it won't introduce a large amount of serious and unmanageable vulnerabilities into an Ubuntu release. Sometimes, if a serious issue or vulnerability is found during an MIR, this can be brought to the attention of the developers because our main goal is to maintain packages and the digital community secure. However, it is not the main objective to analyze the code as a dedicated researcher of said code would. Another question you might ask yourself, if one single problem is found during a review, will the software package have its migration to main completely disconsidered? And the answer is no as well. Just as when you are renting an apartment, you can interact with your landlord and other people involved in the process. Sometimes you might have an issue with something simple and then you can raise that issue, it is fixed quickly and the apartment is perfect for you to live in just a few days later. The same happens with MIR reviews. Sometimes the security team will recommend fixes after identifying problems in the code and if they are applied, the package is sent to main in the next appropriate release. The same thought process can be considered when you think of a package that has a lot of CVEs. Unfortunately, it's impossible to know every bug in your software and it's normal that people make mistakes. So, sometimes an issue can exist in how many CVEs a software has, but sometimes this can be overlooked when you see that the developer handles those with efficiency and grace. 
It is all about verifying that a package is sufficiently used, sufficiently maintainable, and sufficiently safe to be added to main. If it is more than sufficiently worthy, even better. Choose for main the same as you would choose for your home. That is the idea I wish to share with you today. Maybe a bit intense, but hopefully similar enough that you now have a better understanding about how the Ubuntu components work and how software security may influence what happens to a package when it comes to these components. Please feel free to share your thoughts on this segment or ask any questions you may have in any of our social media channels. I need to go organize some furniture in my new home as well as do some main inclusion reviews. So for now, I leave you all. Thanks for listening, and I will speak to you once again in the future. Bye-bye. Thanks, Camilla. All right, that takes us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks again for listening for another week. Uh, we will be back again with you next week. But uh, in the meantime, if you want to get in contact with the team, as always, you can email us at security.ubuntu.com. We also hang out in the Ubuntu security channel on the libera.chat IRC network. And we're also on Twitter at Ubuntu underscore sec as well. All right, uh, I will speak to you soon, but until then, remember, keep calm because we've got your back, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.